3: Pushkin. Benjamin Marshall is working alone in the wreckage of Vauxhall Baptist Chapel. This area of South London was badly bombed earlier in the Blitz, and the church is now unusable. A strange fire had then caused further damage. Now Marshall is part of the demolition squad, tasked with clearing the charred debris. The July heat is already building, but the 50-year-old continues shoveling dirt and rubble in this airless basement. Spotting a stone slab leaning up against a wall, Marshall decides to move it. I was mesmerized. Beneath the slab is the body of a woman. Naked, dismembered, incomplete. Marshall carefully lifts these pitiful human remains with his shovel and calls out to his foreman. It's been decades since the last burial here and this corpse doesn't appear to have come from a disturbed grave. Could it then be the body of a victim of the Blitz, killed in the air raid that blasted the chapel? and lain undiscovered ever since. That's the conclusion the woman's killer seems to have hoped people would draw. In the chaos and carnage of war, some men assume their crimes will go undetected and unpunished. But looking at the mutilated form of this woman, it's clear that this is not the work of a bomb. The efforts made to disfigure her and disguise her identity tell police immediately that this was murder. This is the seldom told story of women in World War II... ...who were killed not by the enemy... ...but by husbands, lovers and strangers... ...wearing the uniform of their own side.
4: It's also the tale of a particular string of murder victims that history has swept from view. I'm Hallie Rubenhold. And I'm Alice Fiennes.
3: And you're listening to Bad Women, The Blackout Ripper.
4: Dubinsky is not the first to come to this little brick house in London's gritty East End in search of answers. Madame Nerva is expecting her.
3: "Did you bring what I need?"
4: Polly holds out a scarf and sweater. Here you are. They belong to her sister Rachel Dobkin, who's been missing for three days. The clairvoyant ushers Polly inside and then takes hold of these items of clothing. They will be key to her work, for she practices psychometry. She claims that she can read these objects and thereby untangle the mystery of Rachel's disappearance. Polly had come to 17 Underwood Road the day before, frantically seeking help. But Hilda Nerva had been too busy cooking Sunday dinner to go into a psychic trance. Today, however, she is ready. Perhaps her breathing now grows deep and labored, for she is communing with another world.
3: Countryside. I see Mrs. Dobkin
4: and she looks sad. Then Madame Nerva feels a blow to her head and a choking sensation, as though something is tightening about her throat, squeezing, crushing. She gasps for air. The vision is clearly not a hopeful one. But Madame Nerva isn't working totally blind. She knows the missing woman well. Rachel Dobkin is convinced of the psychic's powers and she calls at her home regularly. In fact, Rachel came here just days ago asking Madame Nerva to read a piece of her jewelry. She was meeting the man who gave it to her and she wanted advice. Sensing great sorrow in the gold band, the clairvoyant warned Rachel of grave danger. Will you promise me you won't go? Rachel pledged that she would not see the man. This isn't a story about the Blackout Ripper, to which we'll return next episode. Rachel Dobkin wasn't in the habit of frequenting West End nightclubs, but she faced a danger no less chilling. In Madame Nerva's hand was her wedding ring, and the man she'd promised to avoid was her own husband.
3: In the spring of 1881, Russia's Tsar Alexander II was returning from a military parade to the Winter Palace, taking his customary route when revolutionaries at the roadside threw a bomb under his carriage. The Russian monarch stepped down, seeming unhurt, only for a second explosion to tear through the royal party and its bodyguards. The assassinations sparked a series of vicious anti-Jewish riots, pogroms.
5: The Christians attacked the houses and shops of the Jews indiscriminately by smashing doors and breaking windows.
3: Only one of the ten convicted plotters was actually Jewish. But the Jewish people as a whole were blamed. They were made to pay with their businesses and homes and in blood.
5: One hundred houses were pillaged a quantity of furniture being thrown out into the street. 200 people were injured during the riots.
3: Rachel Dobkin's parents, Barnett and Sarah Dobinsky, were in the eye of the storm. Their province, in what is now Ukraine, saw brutal violence. And in the decade that followed, the situation only grew worse. Imperial Russia imposed both petty restrictions and serious hardships on the Jewish population. For example, businesses could refuse to employ Jews, so many eked out a paltry living in the poorest paying trades. Given the violence and economic hardships, it's little wonder that by 1892, Barnett and Sarah had joined the millions of Jews seeking a new life abroad.
4: The refugees travelled overland at first, mostly boarding and disembarking steam locomotives that puffed and shrieked their way west. At the German frontier, some travellers were packed onto special sealed trains. Fearing the polluting influence of the migrant Jewish Durchwanderer, the Prussian authorities sought to limit their contact with the German population and dissuade them from settling. Conditions on the journey could be abominable. Travellers were treated like prisoners and deprived
6: of access to adequate food and water. It was very hot and close and altogether uncomfortable, said one voyager. I cannot see even now how the officers could allow such a thing. It was really dangerous. But eventually the
4: travellers would have reached Germany's coast, where the train doors would have opened. Sarah and Barnett would then have boarded a steamship to cross the North Sea to Britain. When
3: Barnett and Sarah arrived in London, they settled in the already bustling Jewish community of Whitechapel. According to social researcher Charles Booth, some 90% of London's Jewish population resided in the city's grim East End, and Yiddish was spoken on the streets. The quarter was also a reputed sink of misery and degeneracy. You're a nice piece, aren't you? Filthy, overcrowded, and stinking of rot and refuse. Whitechapel was also notorious for the recent string of savage murders that had been perpetrated on its dingy, narrow streets. In the time since Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Kate Eddowes and Mary Jane Kelly had been killed here, some of the most depressing slums had been cleared, and change was underway. But the East End... Remained of grave concern to politicians and reformers. Studying the Jewish community in particular, Charles Booth noted that these immigrants formed
7: a permanent layer of poverty, verging on destitution.
3: East End Jews worked in trades such as tailoring and bootmaking, but regular employment was hard to come by, and many of those who laboured in the garment industry, like cap maker Barnett, carried out piecework at home, or toiled in cramped workshops under terrible conditions and for little pay. The medical journal The Lancet investigated The
5: condition of Jewish tailors in the East End of London.
3: Its findings carried anti-Semitic overtones, attitudes not uncommon at the time.
5: Our commissioners found them working in unwholesome, overcrowded houses such people were wanting in even the more elementary habits of cleanliness which are possessed by the poorest of english people
3: the dubinskys themselves lived in a house where home life and work life melded the building was divided into tailoring workshops it was here in august 1892 amid rolls of cloth and spindles of thread that sarah gave birth to a baby girl For Jewish women newly arrived in a foreign land and separated from the support of their families, childbirth could be a lonely and frightening experience. Sarah might have been attended by a Boba or a Handywoman, a local not formally trained in midwifery, but who would have been trusted by the community nonetheless. The couple named their new arrival Rachel. More Dubinsky children followed, ...and by the time she was nine, Rachel had four younger siblings. Although some decried the standards of sanitation in Jewish homes... ...others remarked that the children of Jewish immigrants... ...were generally in better health than their Gentile counterparts. One school board president thought that... The improved
7: morality of Jewish parents and the care which their religion demanded as to food was largely the cause of their superiority over English children.
3: The disease rickets, which left many working-class children with weak and deformed bones, was less common in Jewish homes. Medical experts suggested that this was because of diet. Jewish women often banded together to bulk buy fish at the local market, herring in particular, a source of protein, and bone-strengthening vitamin D. Other observers noted the self-sacrificing care and devotion that Jewish parents showed to their children. But illness could still devastate family life. In April 1901, baby Hannah Dubinsky contracted whooping cough. The sound of her gasping breath would have rung through their cramped dwelling. Starved of oxygen, Her tiny body would have at first convulsed and then fallen still as her rattling breaths ceased altogether.
4: Immigrant fortunes could rise and fall. A worker might switch back and forth between the roles of employee and employer over a lifetime. Flush one year, bankrupt the next. But despite the hardships and tragedies they suffered, the Dubinsky family moved, on the whole, upwards. They were among the deserving poor, granted a home in the Leyland buildings, a new housing development that had risen on the ruins of an infamous slum. The red-brick tenement complex radiated out from a central park, and was intended to accommodate policemen, nurses, teachers and other workers of good moral character. There were even shops, schools and laundries on site. The Dubinskys and their lodger, Abram Vogel, took up residence in three rooms. Their quarters would have been compact for seven people, to say the least. But they would, all the same, have felt pleased with their new home. Rachel grew into a petite young woman with dark hair, and a thoughtful, arresting gaze. She was quiet and anxious on occasion. By 18, she was working in the cat-making trade, most likely alongside her father. Then, when she was 28 years old, she was introduced to Harry Dobkin. This match was arranged through a Jewish marriage broker. As summer turned to autumn in 1920, Rachel and Harry wed at Bethnal Green Great Synagogue.
6: The place is perfect. I don't see what's
4: wrong with it. I I can't do anything more. Do exactly as I tell you. Stop it, Harry. Their union, however, (gasps) was not a happy one. According to Harry, the couple argued bitterly from the start.
5: I quarrelled with my wife over the inconvenience of the lodgings we were in and told her I had rooms where we could go. She refused to go there and I left her. The marriage has been a failure from the outset.
4: This separation came just three days after their nuptials. Historian Dr Ginger Frost doubts that disagreements about accommodation alone would have caused such a split. That's really fast. There's something
8: they're not saying about what happened there is what I thought. I don't know what it was, but something that bad within a few
4: days. It could have been sexual incompatibility.
8: Maybe there was just instant dislike. That's possible.
4: Perhaps Harry Dobkin was violent in those first few days. Perhaps, too, sex was an unpleasant, even traumatic, experience for Rachel. Girls and young women generally received little by way of sex education, to the point that a pregnant woman might have no idea how the baby growing inside her would actually leave her body. Harry was gone, but the couple had been together long enough for Rachel to conceive a child. Nine months after they wed and then separated, baby Stanley was born at the City of London Maternity Hospital, under the eye of medical professionals. Such care was a luxury beyond the means of many women, so when Rachel was admitted, it was probably through a charitable scheme.
7: Single women who are sufficiently recommended,
4: said the hospital rules,
7: and are found to be deserving of the benefits of the hospital's charity, will be eligible for admission for their first confinement.
4: On Stanley's birth certificate, Rachel wrote that both she and Harry were residing at the same address, but her husband was who knows where, for he'd gone to sea as a third class steward on an ocean liner. The couple may have separated, but their lives remain knotted together. Their meetings would become ever more acrimonious, and in the coming years, Harry Dobkin would wage an awful campaign of threats and violence against his ever more fragile wife. Bad Women, the Blackout Ripper, will be back after this short break.
0: As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit subject to lender approval and terms apply.
1: No necessary. Void, prohibited by law. 18+ terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at t slash now.
7: State your full name for the record.
3: Harry Dobkin had clearly not been providing for his family and was summoned to the imposing Old Street Police Court where he was ordered to pay the sum of £1 per week to his wife and child, a considerable portion of his earnings. Divorce was expensive, difficult to obtain, and carried a stigma. So the pair chose to remain married. According to Ginger Frost, such messy separations often crippled both
8: parties. Usually separations come... It's usually years of marriage. The woman will do a lot to avoid it because the separation payments you get are not the same as having a breadwinner. They're not enough, really, to keep you and any children. So she has to work. That means somebody has to take care of the kids. It
3: just doesn't work. Harry paid the sum for a few weeks, perhaps, but then fell into arrears. He was again hauled up at court and sentenced to six weeks in prison. This measure was ultimately intended to discourage non-payment, But of course, while Harry was in prison, his income was halted. Him going to jail, that happens all the time.
8: Men can never make these payments because you can't keep two households on that. She can't keep her household on that and he can't keep his on that. You've got to live with somebody else. He didn't appear to want another relationship, but if he ever wanted to have another one, he couldn't afford it because he was paying so much of his pay to her. So
3: conflict on that, really common. When Harry left prison, he took a job aboard the SS Pittsburgh of the White Star Line, sailed away, and did not return for ten years.
4: How Rachel made ends meet in Harry's absence is unclear. It's doubtful he sent money back. When Harry Dobkin finally returned from sea... He says relatives tried to engineer a rapprochement to bring the husband and wife back together again. He even claimed he was offered money to reunite with Rachel. Eight pounds. So the unhappy pair lived together. Briefly.
6: Did you take them? Oh, I know you did.
4: For according to Harry, the arguments erupted again.
6: Tell me where they are. wait to see why I don't you... I then
5: discovered that all my Siemens discharge papers were missing and accused my wife of taking them. She accused me of taking a brooch belonging to her.
6: Where is it? Go on, tell me where you put it. Um, I'm going right to the police.
5: And I was arrested and charged with stealing. The following day, I appeared at Old Street Police Court, but the case was dismissed.
4: The apartment was rented in Harry's name, but he said that he left and moved back in with his parents. He bemoaned that, thereafter, Rachel continually reported him for non-payment of their maintenance agreement and he spent several short spells behind bars. By Harry's account, Rachel was an exasperating nuisance. His sister Annie described how she would turn up at her home, causing trouble. She called at all hours and kicked up a row. There is, however, another side to this story. In January 1935, someone tried to set a fire on Rachel's doorstep. At 5am, an employee of the housing block was sent to survey the considerable damage.
7: From the lock downwards, the door had been burned almost through. It looked as though someone had put some oily rag and paper against the door and had set light to it.
4: Terrified Rachel was convinced that Harry was behind the arson attack. Perhaps it was an attempt to merely intimidate her or perhaps it was a bid to end the union permanently. Rachel didn't pursue her husband through the courts, and no charges were laid against him. The
3: residents of Whitechapel erected barricades and readied themselves to repel the invaders. In almost medieval scenes, cobbles and paving stones were lifted in preparation to pelt the approaching enemy, and those in upstairs windows boiled water to rain down on their foes. Mounted police charged the locals of this Jewish neighborhood, hoping the blows from their truncheons would clear a path through the thousands assembled. A path that would allow Sir Oswald Mosley and his black-shirted British fascists to stage a provocative march. The police could make little headway. The barriers were too numerous, the crowds too enraged, the hail of stones too thick the fascist procession would have to take another route. We want free speech! Complained the Blackshirts when they were denied the chance to strut past synagogues, Jewish homes and Jewish businesses, raising their stiff-armed Nazi salutes. The Blackshirt leader talked openly of expelling Jews from the country. And amongst his rabble-rousing accusations, he blamed the Jewish garment workshops of Whitechapel for the woes of an industry hit by the Great Depression.
5: England Unmarked Power to the English!
3: Bloodied and bested, the Blackshirts at last retreated and marched away from the East End. Mosley had humiliatingly lost the Battle of Cable Street and went to Berlin to lick his wounds... ...where he also found time to marry his fiancée... ...under the gaze
4: of Hitler himself. The doctor examined the bruising on Rachel Dobkin's arms and face. "'What caused this?' he asked his patient. "'My husband,' she replied. When Rachel returned with a black eye... ...Dr Murphy made a record of the assault.'
6: My sister's husband has been very cruel to her.
4: Polly Dubinsky was 11 years younger than Rachel, but she kept a protective eye on her older sister.
6: She has received severe blows from him at different times.
4: Friend Sadie Zimbler also saw Rachel's black eyes and purple bruises. She told me that he was a violent man and I advised her to keep away from him. Although they lived apart, Rachel's meetings with Harry could still flare into disagreement and Harry would try to win these disputes with his fists. The abuse inflicted such trauma that Rachel became unable to work. It seems that Harry's attempts to silence his wife only made her even more reliant on his maintenance payments. Stop it, Harry! In 1937, Harry beat Rachel in the street so hard that she suffered a so-called mental lapse Unbeknownst to her family, she was sent to an observation board in nearby St. Clements Hospital. The treatment of mental illness was changing. Lunatics were now patients, and no longer insane, but of unsound mind. Mental ill health was an ailment, and hopefully a temporary one, rather than an identity. Previously, doctors waited until people were so ill that they could be certified insane and sent to an asylum. But now, observation wards welcomed patients like Rachel and then decided whether they needed more intensive treatment, a period of convalescence, or had recovered sufficiently to be discharged. When Rachel's siblings, Polly, Mary, and Nathan, marched through the doors of the hospital two days later to retrieve her, they were adamant that their sister was quite well enough to leave. Rachel was said to be frightened. I'm not sure I'm quite well. And she described fiery feelings on the crown of her head and giddiness. Though her time in hospital was short, the suggestion that Rachel was of unsound mind would haunt her in the coming years, prompting some to discount her growing concerns about her abusive husband. So,
5: that's one Russian tea... Will
3: he be wanting something to eat as well? Maud Eyre didn't know the agitated man ordering food at her son's cafe on an August day in 1939. The customer, Harry Dobkin, talked to waiting staff, then approached Maud.
5: My wife is pregnant. She's threatened to have an illegal operation. Will you come and have a talk with her and persuade her not to do it?
3: Maud followed Harry Dobkin back to his nearby rented room. He was earning a living making and selling aprons, and the space was both home and workshop. Inside, she found Rachel. She then said, I'm pregnant. I have a boy of
9: 18, and I don't want to go through with another one. I've paid the money,
3: and I'm going to have an illegal operation tomorrow. Maud explained to the Englishwoman that the procedure would be dangerous. I told her not to be silly go through and have the child. Rachel, who admitted that she had already tried to end the pregnancy by swallowing an anti-malarial drug, seemed to listen to this advice.
6: I will not have it done. Will you speak to my husband?
3: Rachel's husband, however, had already left. He'd gone to report her to the police. Interviewed by officers, Rachel described how Harry's abuse had escalated during one of her visits to seek her overdue alimony.
6: About a fortnight ago, my husband forced himself on me and had intercourse, although I did not wish it.
3: This accusation of rape, denied by Harry, seems not to have interested the police. A wife couldn't deny her husband's sex, said the law, but seeking an abortion was an offence they'd happily investigate. Husband and wife disagreed about who'd insisted on the termination, but Rachel was not, in fact, pregnant. A doctor who examined her at the behest of the police concluded that she was going through the menopause and suffering from menopausal neurosis that made her a borderline mental case. In their final report, police noted that Rachel was unreliable, rambling and suffering from bad nerves... Despite Rachel's accusations of violence, the police decided that Harry and Rachel were essentially as bad as one another.
7: Both Mr and Mrs Dobkins are very vindictive towards each other. There is no doubt Harry Dobkins tries to avoid payment of the maintenance order. She in turn molests him whenever possible.
3: Homicide expert Professor Jane Monckton-Smith is familiar with such explanations of domestic violence. The six of one, half a dozen of the other narrative
9: I think is incredibly damaging to victims, especially of control and
3: abuse. We sent Jane the files on Rachel Dobkin, and she felt that the police were wrongly dismissive of Rachel's plight. He wasn't living with her, so he's coming
9: in from outside and forcing himself on her. And this woman is left to deal with the consequences of his violence time and time and time again. And you do not see that being spoken about in any of the records. The violence is almost spoken about as if, well, they had that kind of relationship, so that's what was going on. And she was a bit crazy anyway, so poor guy. She was on the road to losing her life. Absolutely, definitely, and not a single
4: person was on her side. It wasn't long after this incident that Rachel started to visit the medium Madame Nerva. Spiritualism was immensely popular. Practitioners believed that the dead survived in another realm and could commune with the living. Sherlock Holmes creator Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had even been among spiritualism's celebrity proponents. For historian Ginger Frost... Its popularity is linked to the upheaval and tragedy that unfolded in the first part of the 20th century. So many people died in World War I. And the flu epidemic took out even more.
8: And those two whammies within a couple of three years of each other, it was just disaster. And most people had lost multiple people in their lives. They wanted to be able to connect to them again. They wanted some hope that they were still somewhere. And I can understand that.
4: And so seance circles and mediums proliferated.
8: Most of them had like a spirit guide who would show up and they'd speak in that guide's voice and the guide would answer questions. Some of them transported things. Of course, most of them had just concealed them on their bodies, but they would just suddenly spout flowers or they would have a, a relic from another time that would be in their hand or they were seeing things from other times. They were going other places without actually leaving the room. There were all of these kinds of psychic phenomenon
4: Hilda Nerva, a Polish émigré, told the Psychic News that, since childhood, she'd possessed a strange power that enabled her to help other girls with their problems. Rachel certainly came burdened with problems, and her relationship with Madame Nerva seems to have had a therapeutic quality. This wasn't uncommon. You talk out things with
8: them, they're comforting. It's just, if you think of it that way, it's kind of therapy. It seems like a very healthy to have someone
4: to go to and talk to about this stuff and feel better when you leave. Rachel went to the Little Brick House every other Sunday. But April 8th, 1941, was a Tuesday. Rachel Dobkin, now 48 years old, had a pressing question for Madame Nerva.
6: Can you tell me something? Give me an
4: article and I'll try and get through for you. Rachel handed over the wedding ring. And Madame Nerva entered a semi-trance.
0: You are worried and full of trouble... You are planning to go
3: in a few days on a journey to meet someone.
4: Don't go. Leave it to the spirit friends and stay where you are. The psychic described a vision of Rachel entering a large building where she knew there was money for her. I see sadness for you. Will you promise not to go? Rachel made the promise. But Madame Nerva's words seem to have weighed on her heavily. Bad Women, the Blackout Ripper, will be back after this short break.
0: As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet.
2: Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. Two days
3: after her meeting with Madame Nerva, Rachel called at the home of a friend who said she was depressed, anxious, And afraid of Harry.
6: She told me that her husband would get her, sooner or later, would finish her.
3: Yet the following day, Rachel appears to have had a change of heart. On Friday morning, she met with her beloved son Stanley, and they arranged to go to the cinema later that afternoon. At lunchtime, she crossed paths with Polly and told her that her husband had offered her a pound of onions as a present, food being scarce at this stage of the war and she was going to meet him. Harry Dobkins said he encountered his wife on the street near his house. He was on his way out to sell some aprons.
5: It was obvious she had been waiting for me.
3: Rachel was always trying to lure him back to live with her, he said, casting himself in the role of the beleaguered victim.
5: I said, please don't hang around here and cause trouble. My mother is very ill.
3: They agreed to meet later at a local cafe. The proprietress remembered them coming in. She'd seen them together before. They sat at a corner table. The woman was very talkative. The couple appeared quite friendly and they were not quarrelling or arguing. But Harry told a different story.
5: She said, if you don't make peace with me, I'll make trouble for you. She was talking in low tones but was a bit hysterical. After this threat, I said, I'll consider peace if you will calm yourself and go home. She drank a cup of tea and as we left the tea shop she said she didn't feel well and she was going to her mother's to hear the wireless.
3: Harry said she boarded the number 22 bus and he watched as it lurched away
4: towards Shoreditch. That evening, Polly finished work and went home early. The baby of the family, she hadn't followed her siblings into the garment trade and had instead learnt shorthand typing and become a bookkeeper and clerk at a city office. Rachel never appeared at the flat to rest and listen to the wireless, nor did she make it to the cinema with Stanley. Ordinarily, she would call round in the evenings and eat dinner with her family, but that night, her place at the table sat empty. The following morning, there was still no sign of her, and Polly felt uneasy enough to let herself into Rachel's flat with the spare key. When she saw her sister's undisturbed bedsheets and realised that she hadn't slept there, Polly felt sure that something terrible had happened. At first, the flames licked at the old church ruins, dancing across its floorboards and wood panelling. Then they curled around what remained of the timber rafters, and soon the orange blaze lit up the night sky... Harry Dogkin supplemented his income as a part-time fire watcher at the warehouse next door. Apron sales had been poor, so he spent his nights protecting these premises from the incendiary bombs dropped by the Germans. He greeted the police and firefighters when they finally arrived, showing them the best route to reach the fire that gripped the bombed out ruins of Vauxhall Baptist Chapel. The stout little man in his suit and trilby hat seemed excited, and claimed to have tried to extinguish the flames, though he hadn't raised the alarm, his very role as a fire watcher. One witness recalled a strange remark he made. I didn't do it.
3: Across town, the Dubinskys were worried sick about Rachel. They hadn't seen her for over three days, and they'd alerted the police. The only clue was Rachel's handbag that had been found 30 miles from the city and which contained vital documents such as her ration book. Officers searched for the missing woman at train stations and in local hospitals and they wrote extensive reports, but they did not take Polly's suspicions or the prophecies of Madame Nerva particularly seriously. Instead, they pointed to Rachel's mental health history The woman was clearly troubled, and she'd probably gone and drowned herself, they thought. But over the next year, Polly returned time and again to the police, imploring
6: them to act. Knowing the character of her husband, I'm reporting this because I feel he has had some hand in her disappearance.
3: Polly's unrelenting campaign for justice seems to have annoyed the detectives. One police file cast doubt on her mental health saying she'd buckled under the sorrow of Rachel's disappearance and was experiencing hallucinations. Officers did search the chapel, but, hampered by bomb and fire damage, found nothing. And ultimately, it was thought inconceivable that Harry Dobkin would have waited over 20 years to kill Rachel.
7: There is not the slightest indication that Harry Dobkin has murdered his wife, as suggested by the missing woman's relations.
3: But Jane Monkton-Smith says that to arrive at such a conclusion is to totally misunderstand intimate partner violence. One thing that we do know
9: about this type of homicide is that there's a level of planning in most of them. And in some cases, they will try and make it look like there's been a car accident or a, a strange fall or even illness sometimes, that goes on a lot. So sometimes these things are never found out and sometimes,
3: yeah, it can take a long time before they're uncovered. The police also tied themselves in knots to discredit accounts of Harry's violence. For instance, Polly may have noticed Rachel's bruises and been told how they'd been caused, but officers noted that Polly had never actually seen Harry strike her sister or threaten her life. In their questions to witnesses, the police also seem to have been particularly interested in how often Rachel contacted Harry, as though this meant she could not have seriously feared he would do her harm.
9: When I was reading the case notes for this, I actually got quite angry because she suffered a significant injury which caused people to then be able to accuse her of having mental health problems. This poor woman probably couldn't open her mouth without somebody interpreting what she was saying or doing as crazy, which then tends to protect him. But he inflicted that injury. And then she's accused of chasing him for money and him having to spend time in prison because he hadn't paid the money. This is a violent nasty man he was the architect of all of the problems that she had and they're speaking about him as if she's the problem what did they think she was going to do for money she had no means of supporting herself she was of a status of a single mother back then oh my goodness that would have been so hard
3: as the months went by there was still no sign of rachel Twice, Polly was called in to identify bodies, neither of which turned out to be her sister. These experiences proved so traumatic that Polly refused any further invitations to the morgue. Harry Dobkin probably thought that he had got away with Rachel's murder, but Harry Dobkin was wrong.
4: The forensic pathologist set to work examining the torso that Benjamin Marshall had discovered in the basement of the chapel. It was so small and slight that, at first, he thought it might have belonged to a young girl. The hair and other parts of the body were missing, and what remained had been mutilated and partially burned. The perpetrator clearly thought his grisly handiwork would frustrate attempts to identify the dead woman. But the murderer hadn't reckoned on the persistence and skill of the pathology team. They raked and sieved through tons of rubble from the chapel looking for more clues, and they x-rayed and photographed the remains in a lab at one of London's top hospitals, determined to find out who the dead woman was. Finally, Abraham Kopkin was summoned. He tended to teeth across the East End, fillings, extractions, dentures. A surviving section of jaw was set before the dentist.
5: That's my patient. That's Mrs Dobkin.
4: In August 1942, the police went to question Harry Dobkin. He was living with his aged parents in the front room of their house. The space was furnished simply, and there were boxes of leather and fabric straps everywhere.
7: There has been a development in respect to your wife. I want you to accompany us to the police station for further inquiries...
4: Harry protested that he knew nothing of any cellar at the chapel, had never once been down there. He grew agitated, and then he took a bill from a leather merchant's firm out of his pocket, scrawled a note on the back, and handed it to a police officer. He was said to be in the habit of writing down his thoughts on scraps of paper.
5: Divisional Inspector, dear sir. It read... In respect to what you say, that my wife has been found dead or murdered and that you say, I know something that I am holding back from the police, I am sorry to say that I cannot say anything different to my previous statements.
4: But the police had said nothing about murder, nor had they suggested he was holding information back from them. They charged him, implying that Rachel had driven her husband to murder.
7: We suggest that Dobkin had reason to be rid of his wife, as she had been a financial encumbrance to him for many years... The maintenance order was a constant drain on him. He'd been committed to prison several times for its non-payment. He has also said that she pestered his parents, which did not improve matters.
4: Jane Monkton smith thinks that such a reading of Harry Dobkin's motive, one that paints Rachel as a shrew and to blame for her own death, badly misses the mark that's the society we created for women. Men created
9: for women a society where they would be reliant on them. And they get annoyed about that when they don't want that woman anymore. And he wanted rid of her. I really believe he wanted rid of her because he could see himself going back into prison again for not giving her money. How dare she? How dare she wreck his life by trying to get money off him when he's got other things to do and a life to lead with no thought for how he has wrecked her life and just expected
4: that she would take it. The jury deliberated for only 20 minutes and they were unanimous on their verdict. Harry Dobkin had strangled his wife to death with his bare hands and then concealed her remains in the church cellar. He was hanged on a cold, foggy morning ...at Wandsworth Prison in South London. After the trial, a journalist visited the Dubinsky family home. They kept a photo of Rachel atop the piano, she noted... ...and another over on the wall. And very beautiful, she looked. The reporter was intrigued by the role Madame Nerva... ...and spiritualism had played in the case... Then Rachel's mother Sarah and her sister Mary confided that all the time that her body had lain concealed in the church ruins, they'd heard strange knocks at the door, only to find no one waiting on the step. And then in the dead of night, Sarah had repeatedly been woken by a voice from the playground outside, the voice of her missing daughter. Rachel, so tormented and ill-served in life, now at least rested in a proper grave. On the headstone, the Dubinskys chose to end the heartfelt inscription with a wish. Peace
6: to her dear soul.
3: Bad Women, The Blackout Ripper is hosted by me, Hallie Rubenhold. And me, Alice Fiennes. It was written and produced by Alice Fiennes and Ryan Dilley, with additional support from Courtney Garino and Arthur Gompertz. Kate
4: Healy of Oakwood Family Trees aided us with genealogical research. Pascal Wise sound designed and mixed the show and composed all the original music. The show was recorded at Woodrow Studios by David Smith and Tom Berry. You also heard the voice talents of Ben Crow. David Glover, Melanie Guttridge, Stella Harford, Gemma Saunders, and Rufus Wright. Much of the music you heard was performed by Ed Gocken, Ross Hughes, Christian Miller, and Marcus Penrose. They were recorded by Nick Taylor at Porcupine Studios. Pushkin's Ben Tolliday mixed the tracks. And you heard additional piano
3: playing by the great Barry Wise. Hi, Barry. The show also wouldn't have been possible without the work of Jacob Weisberg, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Murano, Eric Sandler, and Daniela Lucan. We'd also like to thank Michael Buchanan Dunn of the Murder Mile podcast, Lizzie McCarroll, Catherine Walker at the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, and the Earby Historical Society. Bad Women is a production of Pushkin Industries. Please rate and review the show and spread the word about what we do. And thanks for listening.